Hi, everyone. Laszlo Montgomery here. The Shanghai Ningbo trip is now behind me. Just got back. But whilst in Ningbo with all my peoples, I received a directive from high on up to be in Hong Kong for an October 6th meeting with another big American retailer. So I'm not home for long. And the way it's looking this month, I'm not going to be in good old Claremont much at all. So the next few weeks are going to be, in a word, dicey for the China History Podcast. Today, I wanted to go back in time a little. We've been sort of hanging around modern times too much. It's been a good three months since that episode 47 on Zhang Qian, the Han Dynasty adventurer. And as ancient times go, there's still a lot more ancient times than the Han. So I thought, let's break away from these modern times and push the dial back all the way to the beginnings of the Zhou Dynasty. When you combine the Western and Eastern Zhou, you have about 790 years. Longest dynasty in Chinese history, and uh, let me put air quotes around the word longest. The person we're going to focus on today and give his due is the Duke of Zhou, Zhou Gong. He lived from the time period of the 12th century BC, roughly 1100 BC, 3100 years ago. This would be a little before the time of King David and a little after Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, we're talking a long time ago. Today, we circle back to episode number 16 and take a closer, in-depth look at the Duke of Zhou. If you recall from that episode, the first dynasty from which we have rock-solid evidence of their existence and history was the Shang, the Shang dynasty, Shang Chao. They enjoyed a good six centuries before they were overthrown by the state of Zhou. And we see in China the first example of the mandate of heaven and how it all worked. The Shang had declined in all ways and had lost heaven's favor. And therefore, King Wen of Zhou and later his son, King Wu, overthrew the Shang. And then in 1046 BC, the Zhou dynasty begins. We credit the Duke of Zhou with formulating this whole concept of the mandate of heaven, the Tianming. In the pantheon of Chinese emperors, King Wen, Zhou Wenwang, and his son, King Wu, Zhou Wu Wang, both rank very, very highly. These were two leaders who history is looked kindly on as the perfect embodiment of ability, wisdom, and bravery on the battlefield. You've all heard of the Yi Jing. This is one of the most sacred texts in all of Chinese literature. It's sort of a guide to divination and how to interpret all kinds of natural things. This was written by King Wen of Zhou, King Wen, who gave us the I Ching. And once again, to remind you, King Wen uh, didn't live to see the Battle of Mu Ye in 1046, where the evil Shang dynasty King Zhou Xin went down in defeat, spelling the end of the Shang. King Wen's son, King Wu, as I said, was the victor on that fateful day. And then you have the establishment of the Zhou dynasty, from which so much of what was great about China sprang forth. This is where we can see it all start to happen right before our eyes. King Wen is revered for co-founding the Zhou dynasty and for giving us the I Ching. So now our story begins. This revered king and Zhou dynasty founder, Zhou Wu Wang, son of Wen Wang, he didn't live too long after he founded the dynasty in 1046, almost three years after he overthrows the last Shang dynasty king, he himself meets his maker. He's gone 
all too soon. Fortunately, King Wen had another son. This was King Wu's younger brother, and this was the Duke of Zhou. Now, Kings Wen and Wu, they both always make the list of China's greatest kings and emperors, but they are both eclipsed in history by the Duke of Zhou. If you would stroll through the Chinese History Hall of Fame and you had to pick out the most revered historical person of all, you might think, well, Confucius. But Confucius in his lifetime had already deferred to the Duke of Zhou as his inspiration. The Duke of Zhou, not a king, not an emperor, not even a leader in the technical sense, he was what's known as a regent. You see, the way the Shang kings did it, when their kings died, the throne went to his brother, assuming he had one. The way the Zhou kings did it, the throne passed to the son. So when King Wu dies three years into the new dynasty, all he has to show for himself is a young son. The new King Cheng, who was by no means old enough or wise enough to lead his people, especially so early in the ballgame. The Shang were defeated, but it probably wouldn't be too hard to make a comeback against a young pup on the throne who was hardly a Wen or a Wu Wang. And this is where the Duke of Zhou comes in. He was the eternal man who said what he meant and meant what he said. He seized power as the uncle of the new king, who was still in his minority, and he fought off all the wolves who moved in on the young lamb, protected the rightful heir to the throne, the second of the Zhou dynasty kings. And when the boy becomes a man and was ready to assume his role as king, the Duke of Zhou dutifully steps aside and retires to an advisory role. In that political act, Zhou Gong is revered almost like no other person in all of China's millennia of history. World history is so chock full of stories of bloody transitions of power. It almost seems like the norm. In Zhou Gong, China had a great, wise, virtuous man who knew how to command men, protect the realm, and through his own actions, served as a role model for everyone. So let's focus in on what else was attributed to Zhou Gong and why, when you look at the entirety of his contribution to Chinese civilization, does Confucius say the immortal words in his Analects, Shen yi wu shuai, ye jiu yi wu, bu fu meng jian, which in so many words says, I must be slipping. How long it has been since I have dreamt of the Duke of Zhou. This is interpreted to mean Confucius himself, the most revered of the revered, showing deference to this great man, Zhou Gong. Now, the way it worked, when the Zhou took over, that's when the whole feudalism thing started. The king doled out hereditary fiefdoms to all the guys who stood by his side and helped him bring the Shang down. The Duke of Zhou, being family and all, he was given a fiefdom as well. This one in the town of present-day Chufu. This town served as the capital of the state of Lu, and it was this state that was given to the Duke of Zhou. However, Zhou Gong did not stay here. He stayed close by the side of his brother, King Wu, all the way until the king died. And then, of course, he becomes the regent for King Wu's son, King Cheng. So although he was technically the Duke of Lu, Lu being his patrimonial state, because he chose to be at the capital with his brother, he was known as the Duke of Zhou instead. The state of Lu is one of the most historically 
important lands of all of ancient China. This is where Confucius was born. So this was the hereditary fiefdom of the Duke of Zhou. And like all the Zhou kings, he was surnamed Ji. His name was Ji Dan. His brother King Wu was Ji Fa, and King Wen was Ji Chang, and they were all of the Zhou clan. But they were all surnamed Ji, all the Zhou kings, all the way to the very end, all of the Ji family. So, Zhou Gong, he was also known as Zhou Gong Dan, Shu Dan, and Zhou Dan. In these ancient days of three and more millennia ago, sacrifices and rituals were quite important. The Shiji, or Records of the Grand Historian, enumerates a number of instances where the Duke of Zhou was intimately involved in the minutiae of all the rituals and directing how the sacrifices should be made, especially with the rites and whatnot associated with the transition of power from Shang to Zhou. And so it was, the Duke of Zhou seized power and began his regency. And sure enough, there were revolts against Zhou Gong. Other of the Zhou princes, jealous for the throne, collaborated with defeated Shang Dynasty remnants to challenge the Duke of Zhou's sincerity. After all, no one ever actually believes it when someone claims temporary leadership until the king is old enough to come into his own. The way the story always seems to play out is someone seizes power in the name of the infant or boy king, and then in no time at all, the kid dies mysteriously, or sometimes not so mysteriously. So the Duke of Joe, he puts down all these revolts and brought peace to the land. But of course, while he was away defending his nephew, King Chung, suspicion at the royal court starts to flow. There was lots of loose talk going around that the Duke of Zhou was indeed going to do what everyone suspected and usurp the throne. King Chung gets wind of it, of course, and a doubt is placed in his mind. But time and again, Zhou Gong's sincerity is tested, and without exception, in every situation we see Zhou Gong selflessly making decisions and without fail, always acting in the young king's interests. And the king time and again, sees with his own eyes the true devotion and wisdom of his uncle. And just as he said he would, the Duke of Zhou acted as the perfect regent, ensuring young King Cheng was given the best guidance and proper understanding of everything that was demanded of a king. It was the Duke of Zhou who taught King Cheng what the mandate of heaven was and the importance of the king in this whole sacred arrangement. And during the entirety of the period of Zhou Gong's regency, he worked tirelessly to establish the dynasty and build a strong, long-lasting foundation for the king. Little did the Duke of Zhou know that these foundations he was building would last for thousands of years. And then, just like that, one day in 1035 BC, young King Cheng was old enough and trained enough to assume his role as the king of the Zhou, and as I mentioned in podcast 16, like the more well-known historical examples of Cincinnati and George Washington, the Duke of Zhou takes this ultimate power that he held in his hands and with the greatest possible dignitas and sincerity, hands it back to the sovereign and retires from his temporary role and then goes on to serve the king as a loyal advisor until his death. But it's not just for this 
that Zhou Gong became such a revered person from Chinese history. For an encore, as if this wasn't enough, he worked tirelessly as an advisor to King Cheng. In this supporting role, the Duke of Zhou, for all intents and purposes, wrote the playbook for how the whole central Zhou government should be set up and organized and all the basic laws, rituals, and rites. And of course, in those days, who knew anything for sure? But the Duke of Zhou, Zhou Gong, he's also credited with the notations for the 64 hexagrams of the I Ching that served as the sort of the Bible for divining signs from heaven and what certain things or forces meant. And remember, it was King Wen who organized the 64 hexagrams and his son, the Duke of Zhou, uh, who took it one step further and interpreted it and sort of finished off the I Ching. Then... Taoists and spiritualists used this text in, you know, various forms for the next few thousand years. You cannot imagine how huge this is. I mean, especially in Chinese folk culture. It doesn't seem like much, but it was very long-lasting. He's credited with the rites of Zhou, the Zhou Li, but probably he didn't write it. It makes up one of the three texts that form the backbone of Chinese rituals and etiquette. Zhou Gong is also credited with the Ya Yue. This was the basic foundation for all Chinese music played at the court. It meticulously clarified which music was for which ritual and how everything was supposed to be played out. That minimalist sound that sort of captures the essence of ancient Chinese music, it has its roots here in the Ya Yue. And this is also attributed to the Duke of Zhou. I know in our modern days this sort of sounds like a mere trifle and utterly unimportant but in those days the attention that was paid to all aspects of etiquette and ritual it, it was pretty substantial and music played no small role in almost everything that went on in the royal palace and i think you'll find this practically in every ancient culture anywhere on earth by the way some aspects of the ya were still being used as late as the Qing dynasty. So as I mentioned, I want to stress a lot of the things credited to the Duke of Zhou and, you know, from his times had a very long lasting impact on Chinese culture. In fact, some have even called Zhou Gong the father of Chinese culture. There are other things credited to the Duke of Zhou, such as the first workable astronomical observatory from which the most important and earliest observations were made of the all important solstices. Zhou Gong is also closely associated with dreams and interpreting dreams. People dreamt 3,000 years ago, same as we do today. In our modern times, we understand dreams a lot better, but in Zhou Gong's time, these were taken much more seriously as signs from heaven or maybe about things that may or may not happen. And so interpreting these dreams was a very big deal, and there had to be some manual that served as a guide. And so, just as Confucius dreamt of Zhou Gong, so did the great duke become associated with dreams and even became a sort of a, a god of dreams. The ancient work known as the Zhou Gong Jie Meng, or Zhou Gong's Book of Auspicious Dreams, became the handbook for interpreting dreams throughout Chinese ancient history. I remember when I used to travel to China with this guy, he passed away, but he was a regular riot. Uh, Li Zhi Guo, good old Raymond Lee. He used to say late at night when it was time to turn in that uh, he was going to Chu Zhao, 
Zhou Gong or Chu Jian Zhou Gong, I don't remember. But this essentially was his way of saying goodnight, that he was going to go look for or go see the uh, Duke of Zhou, sort of a Chinese way of saying goodnight, because you would soon be seeing Zhou Gong in your dreams. When the Duke of Zhou passed from this earth, he had made preparations for his tomb to be near the capital of Luoyang so that he may be close to King Cheng and, you know, still serve him in the afterlife. But King Cheng, to show his uncle the reverence he was due after all Zhou Gong had done for him, King Cheng had his uncle's tomb constructed instead next to the founder of the dynasty, King Wen, the, the duke's father and King Cheng's grandfather. To do it this way allowed King Cheng to express the ultimate respect that never did he once consider the Duke of Zhou as his subject. And to further heap honor and respect to the Duke of Zhou, his state of Lu was given all kinds of special honors such that might only be accorded to the royal capital. Zhou Gong was revered throughout Chinese history and has been given the greatest honor of being called the Yuan Sheng, or the First Sage. And in a culture that so honored and revered their sages, to be called the Yuan Sheng was indeed uh, quite an honor. If you recall during the Tang Dynasty episode, when Wu Zetian seized power upon the death of her husband, the emperor, she named her brief dynasty the Zhou Dynasty, specifically uh, in honor of the Duke of Zhou. In uh, 2004, in Qishan County, Shanxi province, west of present-day Xi'an, uh, Chinese archaeologists chanced upon what they believe is the tomb of uh, Zhou Gong. Like many tombs, such as those of Qin Shi Huang and Wu Zetian, it has yet to be excavated. But when the time is right and the technology is advanced enough, Chinese historians and scientists will determine whether this is indeed the tomb of this giant of Chinese history and culture. And that's all I have for you today, my wise and wonderful listeners. As the podfather himself, Robert Packett, might say, I hope you enjoyed that. Things are going to be touch and go for the entire month of October, but don't despair. I'm still going to try and find a way to keep this going each week. This is Laszlo Montgomery coming to you from lovely and warm Claremont, California. Join us next time, won't you, for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.